Welcome back to the Big Amateurs and Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I have some materials in a blog that uh, I've had up for a while now. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, so today is... Uh, Thursday, July 15th, 2021. And in the last episode, I was setting the table for our deep dive into the perfect storm period from the beginning of 2019 to the present. And I've laid considerable foundation for that. And I've decided that I may need to lay a little bit more. I had thought about deferring on talking about the bad actor dynamic in more detail, and also talking about the myth of uh, uniformity as it's been used by various uh, stakeholders in this whole name, image, and likeness debate. But I think that it may make more sense to talk about that in some detail. Look at where some of the proposals on name, image, and likeness have landed after all of this debate, because that may better inform how we look at the events of the perfect storm and the extent to which the NCAA has been so successful at insinuating its fundamental principles and its belief system and its conceptualization of amateurism and the collegiate model and the student athlete into the way that crucial decision makers think about college sports and think about the name, image, and likeness issue. And there have been some uh, recent events which I think really help to illustrate my point there. And a couple of things this week influenced my thinking on calling an audible here and trying to get a little more of the foundation set. One was the Uniform Law Commission's adoption of uniform legislation, uniform laws, in the name, image, and likeness context. So the drafting committee for the Uniform College Athlete Name, Image, or Likeness Act made its proposal after about a year of substantive work after deciding to go forward with the drafting process. And that's an important piece of proposed legislation. I'll talk a little bit in a second about what the Uniform Law Commission is, a little bit about its history, a little bit about the work that it's done, and then how this Name, Image, and Likeness Act fits in to the ULC's work. But that had me thinking about two things. Really, the extent to which NCAA propaganda insinuates itself invisibly into the thinking of really influential stakeholders. And then the other thing that the ULC's work on name, image, and likeness had me thinking about really was how uniformity has been used in this entire name, image, and likeness debate. And it really operates at two levels. One at the federal level, And that's where you see the NCAA and Power Five interests and Republican senators who are NCAA friendly proposing laws under the banner of, quote unquote, uniformity that really don't offer any substantive nil benefits at all. And most of them defer to some third party administrator who's going to make those determinations down the line after 
the NCAA gets antitrust immunity, the preemption of all state nil laws that would nullify all these state laws, and then this no employee provision. And only then would there be an attempt to try to define the name, image, and likeness marketplace. That form of uniformity, I call it iron throne uniformity, equals preemption. It doesn't equal a substantive name, image, and likeness law that has everybody reading from the same page because the substantive nil benefits don't exist in these federal laws, at least not the ones presented by the NCAA and the Power Five through their Republican allies in the Senate. So you have virtually no substantive nil discussion at all, but you have preemption and uniformity equals preemption the way that the NCAA and Power Five have been pitching that issue in Congress. So that is a much different type of uniformity from the uniformity that the states are trying to create. And they are trying to be a little more clear at the substantive level about what types of activities are permitted, what types are excluded, and then having more specific regulatory requirements. So really the state laws are going to the meat and potatoes of what the athletes are permitted to do in the real world of name, image, and likeness compensation and what they can't do. And in our system of limited federal government and states' rights and the Tenth Amendment and federalism, one state can't tell another state whether it can engage in the legislative process in a particular area. Only the federal government can do that through the supremacy clause of Article 6 of the United States Constitution. And that is expressed doctrinally as preemption. So when the NCAA and the Power Five are talking about preemption, they use uniformity as the justification for preemption. But that uniformity has absolutely nothing to do with actual nil rights. It only has to do with who gets to decide what those rights might be. And that is the NCAA excluding states, completely taking states off the map and, and excluding them as potential regulatory threats to the NCAA business model. When we're talking about uniformity, it's important to draw these distinctions. Another reason that this Uniform Law Commission proposed law is important is that it acknowledges explicitly, both in the text of the document and then in comments that were made as the, this proposed uniform law was being presented to the full commission, and I'll talk a little bit more about the process here in a second as well. But the long and short of it is on actual substantive name, image, and likeness regulation or legislation at the state level or at the institutional level, there is no dissimilarity. There is no non-uniformity. These laws are all the same, strikingly similar, virtually identical. And even with a uniform law that is recommended here by the ULC on name, image, and likeness, if every state adopted this law, there still wouldn't be perfect uniformity. It, it can't exist because this is a suggestion. The states don't have to adopt it. The ULC is a private entity. It doesn't have the powers of the government. It can't direct states to adopt its legislation. Congress can suggest that they do, as it is the sense of Congress that they should adopt this legislation. 
legislation. And, and the Congress does that from time to time with the ULC. They did it with the Athlete Agent Act back in 2000. And I'm going to talk about that as well, because that really gets to the heart of this bad actor mentality that's woven into a lot of the thinking on these issues. But the belief that lack of uniformity in state laws and executive orders and now these institution-based regulations on name, image, and likeness is an existential threat to the quote-unquote integrity of college sports is simply not true. First of all, all of these laws are virtually the same. And the only outliers we have so far are California and New Mexico. And the California law started this whole thing. I think Mexico's trying to get a little bit of a competitive advantage. They're not a power five school. They think they want to run with the big boys. And this may be a way to try to level the playing field. <laughs> Ironically, it's th- that difference that might result in an actual level playing field. A lot of the philosophies underlying these state laws and, and this ULC law is that we want to have a level playing field. Everybody wants to have a level playing field. No, the power five want to protect the, the insurmountable competitive advantage that they have. And they don't want New Mexico or Montana or Wyoming coming up with state legislation that allows them to compete in the talent acquisition market with the Power Five. That's not going to, that's just not going to happen. And when you look at the extent to which NCAA propaganda is underneath a lot of these state laws and the executive orders and, and then this ULC law, you really begin to understand how important that one issue is. So we have all these things coming together. We've got this really interesting use of uniformity at two different levels. And then you have this bad actor mentality that the white hat, black hat dynamic that, again, I think is uh, really influential, even in an environment when it appears to a lot of people that the NCAA is really on the run and they got their butt kicked in the U.S. Supreme Court. Then they really didn't get anything done in the Senate. And then they basically waved the white flag on name, image, and likeness and really pulled out of that market and just turned it over to the states and to the individual institutions. Despite that characterization, that belief, the NCAA is still winning when you look at what is actually in these name, image, and likeness state laws, state executive orders, and individual conference and school policies. I said a few episodes ago that I was going to take a look at how these regulations at the institutional level started to play out and what they looked like. And I went back as I was preparing for this episode and looked at probably 20 different policies. And then I selected about five that I may talk a little bit about in this episode, but I may defer it to another, not sure. But looking at those, and I included Power Five schools, uh, group of five schools, public and private, they are virtually identical in their key provisions. Some are more specific than others. Some throw in an additional provision that is material, I think, but not in a way that makes the laws dissimilar. There is virtually no dissimilarity in the substance of these laws and these regulations. And the Uniform Law Commission, I think, has acknowledged that, really puts it in an interesting posture here. Because if you already have uniformity, substantive uniformity, at the state level on down to the institutional level, what's the purpose of the uniform law? And 
I think the timing is part of this, too, because the uh, ULC fast-tracked this legislation, and, and that was a red flag to me. And normally, this process takes two years from the time they decide to legislate in a particular subject matter area to the time they get approval from the full commission. This happened in a year, just a little bit over a year. And what was the emergency? Why the panic? And when you look at the areas in which the Uniform Law Commission has traditionally legislated, then you compare it to the athlete agent law and then this name image and likeness law, you really come away scratching your head. And I think that's another dynamic that's played out in this entire debate is the manufactured sense of urgency that the sky is falling unless we get absolute uniformity and we incorporate all these guardrails, all these consensus principles, all these restrictions to protect the integrity of college sports, the integrity of college sports. Like that phrase again and again. And we have all these defined terms in these laws, federal laws, state laws, executive orders, these school policies. Show me a definition of the integrity of college sports. Show me a definition of amateurism. Show me a de definition of the collegiate model or the student athlete or pay for play. They go to idiot detail to define agent and booster and third party so that they can impose all these draconian limitations on those market actors of, that the NCAA has no control over. So they want to regulate them to death to try to bring them uh, to heel to the NCAA's business model. But you don't have any of those terms defined, yet those terms are the underlying principles and philosophies of all of this legislation. And I've been following the Uniform Law Commission, and they allow observers. And I started observing, I don't know, I guess it was back last summer, as I was preparing an article, a post, on the displacement theory, which was a crazy theory. I'll do a separate episode on this. But that was really being promoted by a couple of local athletics directors, Bubba Cunningham at UNC and Kevin White at Duke. And basically they were saying that if, if this name, image, and likeness thing is permitted, then in this zero-sum, nil marketplace, all these high-profile football and men's basketball players are going to steal all the money from all these Olympic athletes and the Olympic sport athletes. What about them? What about the non-revenue athletes? And again, this was a theory that was concocted in the heat of a false sense of urgency that the sky was falling because of COVID and because of lost revenues. And if we allow nil compensation, it will mean the end of college sports as we know it. And there were just some really distressing, disturbing racial connotations to that framework, to that false narrative about the nature of the name, image, and likeness market because the athletes they were accusing of stealing money from the Olympic athletes were by definition and by demographic and by statistical certainty disproportionately African-American men. And they're saying these guys are going to steal opportunities from our Olympic athletes who are overwhelmingly white and well off. Comparatively, at least. It was just really... A bad look and they largely got away with it but Cunningham was involved with the Uniform Law Commission just as many of the powerful interests in big-time college sports were including conference commissioners and power five athletics directors and power five athletics administrators they were all very influential and the NCAA had people at the table 
They were very influential in shaping the message, making their uh, voices heard. The ubiquitous nature of the NCAA's influence and the Power Five influence and all of the institutional influences that have a vested interest, a massive conflicted interest in preserving the status quo were prominent voices. And that's reflected, I think, in this legislation. And we can talk about all the various things that were discussed and the various stakeholders that had input into the process. But ultimately, the work product is the work product. And the work product incorporates principles of amateurism, the collegiate model, and the student-athlete. But the reason I reached out to the ULC was that Cunningham, in one of his public rants on name, image, and likeness, he referenced a memo that was drafted by one of the members of the committee, a very influential person in college athletics. This guy, his name's Harvey Perlman, and he was on the NCAA Division I Board of Directors, I believe. And then he, he was also the president of the University of Nebraska. And he's been on the ULC, and he's a brilliant guy. And he knows the sports industry inside and out in a way that I think no other commissioner really did. Yeah, you want to listen to Professor Perlman, but I'm not sure his interests were really pro-athlete. That's just my opinion. So I wanted to get hold of that memo to fold that thinking into what was happening in this displacement argument and also to see where the ULC was going with this legislation. And the ULC folks were phenomenal. They were accommodating and allowed me to peek in as an observer. And I did that and I, I jumped in a little bit late. And I missed really what would have been the most important phase of the decision-making process, to me at least, from where I was coming from. And that was whether or not the ULC should even be legislating in name, image, and likeness. And ironically, I was starting from the same uh, viewpoint, actually, as Professor Perlman, because in his memo, he dissents from the committee's decision to go forward into the drafting phase. He didn't think that the ULC should be legislating in this area because he didn't support name, image, and likeness rights. At least that's how I read his memo. And I have my own thoughts on that. And my views are pretty radical compared to where they were coming from because I thought a lot of the problems of legislating in this area through the ULC was that their work in the Uniform Athlete Agent Act was so infused, I believe, with this bad actor propaganda that is NCAA propaganda. The NCAA was very influential in promoting the adoption of the Uniform Athlete Agent Act in 2000. But I'm going to go through the history of that because I think we have to talk about the bad actor issue and how it's evolved. And I'm going to press rewind from 2000 when the Uniform Law Commission got involved to 1987 when I had a front row seat to the events that really turned this bad actor uh, theory into a crusade for the NCAA. And this whole bad actor, black hat, white hat dynamic just went on steroids. And I'm going to talk about the people that were involved, the states that were affected, the institutions that were affected, what the initial response was at the state level, and then how the philosophy underpinning those laws got cemented in to this spontaneous consent. And everybody believed that 
agent. The word agent was a bad word and it just conjured up all kinds of horrible images. They tried to play this game. It's just some bad actors. No, they were categorically the NCAA and the big time college sports football interests. Because a lot of this played out in the SEC and Alabama is a great example because Alabama got hammered because of some athletes that engaged in relationships with agents that violated NCAA laws. (laughs) And all these interactions were only problematic because the NCAA rules allowed them to deem the athletes ineligible and then to impose penalties on the universities. And all this runs through the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism and its business model, its business interests. And if you just take the NCAA out of the equation here, if the NCAA rules just ceased to exist today, all of these problems about compensation, about nil, about athlete agents, all that goes away. It just disappears because all this is a product of the NCAA's dishonest business model. To understand, though, the strength of that narrative, you really have to go back and look at how the institutions who were affected during this agent scandal in the late 80s reacted and overreacted. And then it became this group dynamic. And there was a group think, particularly among the SEC states. And it was powerful. And it has not gone away. And when you look at this uniform law commission law and you look at it, just take the document. There are 22 pages, I think, in this document. Half of them are devoted to regulating agents, athletes, boosters, and third parties. And we're right back to the athlete agent mentality. We are right back there. And I think it's difficult to argue that this law was not influenced in substantial part, not only by the terms of the athlete agent law, but its underlying philosophies. And those are philosophies that have been propagandized by in-system people who are actually not engaging in behavior that's any different from the athlete agents. And these coaches are going out and they're making all kinds of promises and they're offering inducements and they're uh, doing their best to try to get access to the same talent that the athlete agents are are getting to for the same purpose because they both want to make money off the kid. The coach wants to win. The institution wants to win. If the coach wins, he gets paid more money. The athlete agent wants to get a relationship with the kid because when the kid goes pro, he gets a piece of the action. They're both competing in the same arena, but the athlete agent is deemed the Duke of Darkness and the NCAA and and the coaches and the institutions are wearing the white hat. (laughs) Some of the language in some of these institutions, these institutional policies that have gone into effect in the last two weeks really acknowledge that, at least implicitly, because they try to, to, uh, when they're regulating in the area of inducements and extra benefits that may come to these athletes and they may come from these third parties and they may come from these agents. But when they're characterizing how those interests should be protected, they explicitly exclude NCAA regulations that allow the coaches to engage in the very same behavior that the athlete agents are engaging in. So now let me just turn to what the Uniform Law Commission is, what it does, and a bit of its history. I'm just getting the the big bullet points here. The Uniform Law Commission was founded in 1892, and its purpose was to try to harmonize state laws that were really important to the basic 
functioning of American business and, and commerce. And you have to remember, this really goes back to Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and principles of federalism and the allocation of power between the federal government and the state government. And Hamilton discussed that at length in in the Federalist Papers. And the Tenth Amendment was designed to really cement in this notion that when the Constitution was considered and, and finalized, that we really wanted a system of limited federal government and that the state's autonomy should be preserved. And that was done primarily through the Tenth Amendment. But you still had a need for uh, uniformity at the state level on some of these critical issues. And so the Uniform Law Commission was formed really to try to work within this principle of federalism and states' rights and state autonomy to identify areas that were so important to the nation's functioning. And I would say even the nation's economic security and national security that it stepped in to serve one of the most important roles that a private entity has probably served in America. And I think people don't really understand the importance of their work and how significant and influential it has been in the development of our basic commercial relationships. The And the, the people who serve on the ULC are America's best legal minds. These people are brilliant. You have former uh, Supreme Court justices. You have former other federal judges. You have law professors, the, the best of the best. So this is the delta force of our legal system. And they are very good. <laughs> They're very smart. And I'll say this, the members of the committee and the reporter, the, there's a person who acts as a facilitator who is an expert in the area. And the reporter for this name, image, and likeness law was a guy named Gabe Feldman, who's a professor at uh, Tulane. And he is very impressive. And it's a tough role because he's really not a decision maker. He's not there to influence things one way or another. I'm sure he has his own feelings, but he did a very good job of not showing those. And it's a tough role because you're having to manage all these different voices in the format that they have and trying to move the discussion along, which can be a challenge and not get bogged down and then try to synthesize all this stuff. And he was just really exceptional in that role. My criticism of the law itself is not a criticism of any of the individuals. And I came away with the overall impression that, wow, these men and women are really impressive. Anyway, so the ULC really started looking at business entities in its early years. And it looked at how businesses were formed, what types of business arrangements were going to be legally recognized, and then how should they be defined and how should they be regulated. So you had a uniform law on partnerships, you had a uniform law on limited partnerships, and then other types of business entities. And that's really important because it helps to provide some some shape and character to the market actors. Then you had commercial transactions. And I would say this probably is the crown jewel of the ULC's work. And I believe it was in the 1950s, the Uniform Law Commission put together the first model uniform commercial code, the UCC, the Uniform Commercial Code. And it dealt with business transactions, interstate business transactions. And the goal there was to adopt state laws that were uniform enough to facilitate interstate commerce. And that is so important. And it talks about uh, commercial paper, what types of documents should be universally re- recognized, what should the recommended content of those documents be, how should they be interpreted, how should conflicts over those documents be resolved. It's really putting forth the commercial contract law that would operate in this f- federalist system 
between states and among states. And my first year contracts professor was one of the early pioneers of the UCC, and he was a god. People in the law and the law school knew the importance of that contribution. And so I was very lucky to have a professor like that. So then the other area is trust in a state's law. And this really goes to property rights. So you have the contract rights, which is tied to property, but then you have the actual property rights themselves, how they're protected, how they're passed along. And then you had uh, uniform laws on marriage, divorce, and custody. And those obviously are very important to an organized society and to the extent that they could be harmonized. And this was a little more difficult to harmonize because this gets more into a values-based type of legislation where you have states who want to preserve their values as they see them at the state level. It's a little more provincial, but still uniformity to the extent you can achieve it is important there. And then the ULC started to get into international law and international agreements. And I'm, I'm basing this on just looking at the 300 plus uniform laws that they've passed. And that's not a lot given they've been in, in business for, what, 120 years, 130 years maybe. You've got a, a pretty modest body of work, but it is all important. I mean, when you look at the areas that they regulate, it's, wow, this is big stuff and it's important stuff. And then, and this is really interesting to me, and the ULC decided in 2000, it was going to jump into sports. It had not regulated or offered uniform legislation or model legislation in any area that directly related to athletics at any level, college, professional, Olympic, you name it, really had stayed out of that arena. And it jumped in 2000. I've always thought that was a, really an outlier for the ULC. And I also thought, because again, I was at ground zero of the frenzy in the late 80s, and what I saw as the true motivations of a lot of that legislation that came out, I just thought the better approach would be wait until the furor died down and then take a look at whether those laws should even be on the books. So I'm coming into this Uniform Law Commission name, image, and likeness legislation process thinking, let's start by repealing the Uniform Athlete Agent Act because I think we took a wrong turn there and just kept going. Probably not a popular viewpoint with the ULC, but, and I kept all that to myself. I, I was so far off the reservation with a lot of this stuff that I kept my mouth shut. And really, I didn't want to be mucking things up. There were some people who... Talked a lot, talked a lot, and they were not the actual decision makers. I wanted to hear what the commissioners thought, and those were some really good um, discussions. I come into this with a much different attitude about the necessity for legislation in college sports. And I just don't think this is an area that we need to be legislating, particularly to the extent that we are putting into force of law the regulations of a private actor, a nonprofit entity that has a very clear conflict of interest in promoting that legislation. And it's a very powerful entity. And again, this just goes back to the power of the interests that are pushing for the adoption through governmental action at the state level and at the federal level. And also at the institutional level for the, all these state schools, and 53 of the 65 Power 5 schools are state institutions, 34 are the flagship state universities. So you have this kind of incorporation of NCAA private regulatory policies 
into law. And with these, with the athlete agent law, these penalties against the agents were criminal penalties. In the early phases of this state legislation wave, before the ULC got involved, this is in the late 80s and into the 90s, a lot of these states made it a crime for the athlete to engage in an impermissible relationship with an agent or a tra- impermissible transaction with an agent. And that was judged by NCAA regulations, amateurism-based regulations, that we now know are designed almost entirely to protect the NCAA's economic interests and the economic interests of the Power Five conferences and, uh, and the Power Five schools. That's it. So instead of going back now and revisiting some of these assumptions that sit underneath this legislative wave and this scare that goes back at the state level to the late 80s and then was picked up at the Uniform Law Commission level in 2000, and Congress got involved. So there was the Sports Agent Responsibility and Trust Act. And this, let's see, I'm not sure what year this was passed. I believe it was around the time that the ULC was coming up with its uniform proposed legislation, but or just thereafter. So I think it maybe been like 2004-ish. But basically, this is a dual federal state approach, and it's one that I think the Uniform Law Commission likes. And It is a hybrid where you have this movement towards uniformity at the state level, but then you also have kind of some backing at the federal level. Here, basically, this talks about athlete agents, and although it doesn't explicitly adopt the actual substantive provisions of the uniform law, it talks about the Federal Trade Commission having regulation over bad conduct by the athlete agent. But I think they had that jurisdiction anyway. It's just part of what they do. They just wanted to make clear here, I think, that they were paying attention to the athlete agents. But when it came to the actual substantive legislation and the relationship between state law and federal law, they included something that is called the sense of Congress. And this is a term of art that refers to situations where Congress sees the interest They acknowledge the interest. They understand the positions of the parties urging federal intervention here. But they don't think it's really appropriate for the federal government to be involved. So they say, in this case, in the context of this uh, sport agent responsibility and trust law, that it's it's the sense of Congress that the uh, states should enact the Uniform Athlete Agents Act of 2000, drafted by the Uniform Law Commission. And that's important uh, in getting a stamp of approval, but it also shows you the extent to which the NCAA has been so effective in trying to get its business model blessed at the legal level, at the legislative level. And remember, the reason that this was so important to the NCAA is that they have no jurisdiction over athlete agents. Athlete agents aren't member institutions. They don't work for member institutions. They are free actors, and the NCAA cannot abide a third party over whom they have no enforcement and infractions jurisdiction to be interfering with their business model. That's what this is all about, and that's exactly the way that people are thinking about in the name, image, and likeness context, these very same agents, the athletes themselves, the boosters, and the third-party contractors, they are all treated as bad actors. And I think not because they are all bad actors. We know that they're not. 
And again, they're engaging in activity that's no different than the institutions are, are engaging in. They just, the institutions get a free pass because they are operating under the NCAA's umbrella. But these people are not bad people, but the values that have been brought forward from this athlete agent thinking from the late 1980s is alive and well. And in my judgment, it is right there in black and white. And half of this law, I think I mentioned this earlier, 22 provisions, 11 of them relate to draconian disclosure and reporting requirements and certification requirements and and all of that. And when we get back into the history of this bad actor mentality, you're going to see the extent to which at the state level in the 1980s, states purposefully just loaded up these laws with ridiculous and burdensome regulatory requirements that were specifically intended to deter agents from even doing business in the state. That was the clear purpose of the Alabama law. And the people who sponsored it came out and said they don't want those people doing business in their state. So they made it almost impossible for agents to lawfully conduct business in the state of Alabama. And if they made a foot fault, they were looking at a felony charge. Okay, that thinking, that mentality is still part of the thinking in all of these restrictions that are built into the athlete agent laws and then now these name, image, and likeness laws. And it's true in the state laws that have been passed. It's true in the executive orders. It's true in the institutional policies. It's true in the Uniform Law Commission model law. And all of those restrictions are barriers to even entering the market. You can't deny that. I think if you say that's not true, you really don't understand the history of this bad actor thinking, or and you're just propagandizing for in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. Because there is no question in my mind that these restrictions are specifically targeted to the athlete agents who are going to be competing for the most valuable products in the talent marketplace. And those are going to be football, men's basketball players. That's going to be where the bulk of this activity occurs. That's the only activity that NCAA and Power 5 care about because it's the only activity that can compromise their existing revenue streams and their existing business model. They don't give a damn about some Division three rower who made uh, foot fault, some state nil law. They just don't care because that athlete, that product is no threat to the business model. So when you narrow this to the true people that the NCAA and the Power Five are concerned about regulating, you're looking at a pool of athletes that are disproportionately African-American men, and they are going to be disproportionately impacted in a negative way in terms of having these additional barriers to even entering the market by all these restrictions that are in all of these laws. And we're going to see, we're going to see how that all plays out. And that is a civil rights issue. But when you look at how this Uniform uh, Law Commission name, image, and likeness law is presented, both in its preamble, and it has a preamble that talks about why they're legislating in this area. And then, then there were some interesting comments made when they were presenting this to the full commission. You begin to see that the, the civil rights issue is not on the table. The race issue is not on the table. And you have to ask yourself why. In my observations of the discussions, getting that issue on the table was a real hard sell. And there was recoil from that. And there was a stone silence when somebody pointed that out. It was just, again, some of that I think is the decent concealment that John Quincy Adams talked about in 1840. And I mentioned in my Independence Day episode. But I also think you have institutional interests who, who sure as hell don't want to talk about that because it is an inconvenient topic and it is in direct collision 
with all their propagandization of the purity of, of college sports and the integrity of college sports. And when I hear the phrase integrity of college sports, it makes my blood boil. And it is a code word to me for exploitation. When we're talking about the, the integrity of college sports, what the hell does that mean? Please define that for me. Does the integrity of college sports mean that it's okay for us to steal the labor of black athletes, black male athletes in football and men's basketball, and then divert the revenue produced by that labor to downstream beneficiaries who are comparatively well-off and white? Is, is that what you mean by the integrity of college sports? And what about amateurism, the collegiate model, student-athlete? The NCAA, after 12 years of litigation in these antitrust suits, can't offer an intelligent, coherent definition of amateurism. And you have to ask yourself, why? They spent almost a half a billion dollars in O'Bannon and Austin alone in legal fees and settlements. And after 12 years and a half a billion dollars, the NCAA can't come up with a coherent definition of amateurism. The same is true for the collegiate model. They haven't even tried to define the collegiate model. And it's been used for multiple purposes, as I've addressed in this podcast. But they're using it here, I think, as a substitute for amateurs. And what about the student-athlete? The student-athlete is a fraud. It was invented out of whole cloth by Walter Byers and NCAA lawyers in the 1950s to avoid workers' compensation liability. Define student-athlete. What the hell does it mean? And if you can't define those terms, why are you legislating around them? Why don't you use those words? You don't use those words because you know that they float beneath the legislation that you're proposing and the policies that you're proposing, but you can't defend them. They're indefensible and undefinable. And that speaks to the power of the NCAA and these Power Five conferences and the Power Five institutions. And so they just get swept in without any discussion. This is happening in situations where we have some of the best and brightest in this country looking at these issues and just accepting those underlying principles as unchallengeable propositions, they don't even have to mention them. They're just, it's just the way it is. It's uh, the integrity of college sports, integrity. <laughs> you know, Lindsey Graham, on July 22nd of 2020, held hearings in the Judiciary Committee. And Judiciary had jurisdiction only because the NCAA was seeking an absolute antitrust immunity from federal antitrust liability and lawsuits. So the name of that hearing, Protecting the Integrity of College Sports. And Graham is a piece of work. I, I like Graham. I find him entertaining. And he sometimes just says stuff that is uh, not super well thought out. But here's what he said as he set the framework for this hearing on preserving the integrity of college sports, protecting the integrity of college sports. He says, I see the destruction of college sports as we know it, unless we put a rein on it. And by it, he was referring to athlete compensation, state name, image, and likeness laws, and antitrust litigation. The one thing I'm convinced of is that the federal government, through the Congress, needs to get control of this before we allow the Wild West to take over. So much for states' rights and free markets. Again, you would expect this from Bernie Sanders, not from a Republican senator from the state of South Carolina. Just, again, you just can't make this stuff up. And as I walk through this Uniform Law Commission proposed law, I want to 
keep another thing in mind. And this has been a theme that I've been talking about since I really started writing in this name, image, and likeness context. And as these provisions started to take shape and you had the the NCAA through its working group setting these parameters and then those were being incorporated into all of these state laws. And that is that once you bring in the principle of amateurism or the student athlete or the collegiate model and the integrity of college sports, you have really set very low ceiling. The, the, the room to maneuver in the nil marketplace, once those principles have been put into place and once the institutional interests have been protected, the athletes just don't have a lot of room to maneuver. And I think that is acknowledged implicitly in the way that the a lot of the stakeholders have characterized the task as they saw it. And the Uniform Law Commission, in its preamble to this law, and then it's some comments uh, this week at the presentation of the law, they emphasized the need to strike a balance between moving the needle forward on athletes' rights and compensation while also preserving the quote-unquote integrity of college sports without defining what that is. And I don't think they have to define it. When you look at the provisions and you see the extent to which all of the principles that the NCAA's business model is built upon, amateurism, the collegiate model, the student-athlete, are protected in this law, that's the integrity of college sports. The integrity of college sports means whatever the NCAA defines it to be. This is reminiscent of a quote, and I used this in a post on the Commission on College Basketball in a discussion about the many faces of the collegiate model. And there's a quote by a guy named Noam Chomsky. A lot of people know who he is. He's a political science guy, a philosopher, and he is, I think, a a libertarian kind of on the left side of the libertarian scale. But I just, you know, a lot of people who know me would be saying, be asking themselves, "Uh uh-oh, what happened to Ford? He's quoting Noam Chomsky. But I really like this quote, and I use this at the beginning of my post on the collegiate model. But uh, Chomsky says, the smart way to preserve a corrupt status quo is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum. Even encourage the more critical and dissident views. That gives people the sense that there's free thinking going on while all the time the presuppositions of the system are being reinforced by the limits put on the range of the debate. That is the way that the NCAA discusses issues that go to the core of college sports. It always has control of defining the parameters of the discussion. And when that discussion starts with principles of amateurism, the collegiate model, student athlete, and the integrity of college sports, they've won the argument. For all intents and purposes, they've won the argument. And that's what I see in these name, image, and likeness proposals. Let me just start with the preamble to this Uniform Law Commission document. And it is titled Prefatory Note. And and this tries to offer an explanation of why they're doing this. And they actually use the same format that a lot of members of Congress do who support 
name, image, and likeness rights at the theoretical level, but then buy into all these limitations that are the product of NCAA propaganda. So they start off with about how college sports is a billion-dollar industry, and everybody's making money off of it except the athletes, and there are all these new opportunities and as social influencers and all this stuff. And then they say, despite all these opportunities, the options for athletes remain relatively limited and restricted by the NCAA. And then in, in response to that, you had states trying to step in to fill that legislative or rulemaking vacuum, that leadership vacuum, really. And 40 states have introduced or enacted and all that stuff. And then they talk about the federal bills, but they don't mention preemption. And then then they talk about the NCAA working group that in April 2020 purported to say that it was okay with nil compensation from third parties. And then they say, the lack of uniformity in the state laws presents significant challenges for the NCAA and other athletics associations. And they talk about the importance of having a uniform set of rules governing intercollegiate athletic competitions, that it's well established, as is the notion that intercollegiate athletic associations cannot effectively function as a national association of college sports if it is required to adopt conflicting or inconsistent rules from different states. The proliferation of inconsistent state laws also highlight the risk of instability for the NCAA and other governing bodies. And then they talk about the interdependence of the institutions across the country in, in the context of college sports and how one state could have a ripple effect on others and all of this stuff. And I just want to talk a little bit about some of the premises that are within that description, because that's really the justification for the uniform law on name, image, and likeness. And they say that there is a lack of uniformity in the state laws. That's just not true. It's not true. And they say so explicitly in the last paragraph, they say that many provisions of the ULC Act are similar to provisions found in existing state name, image, and likeness laws. They still say, well, we still need more uniformity. But in the the presentation of this to the uh, full commission just a few days ago, the reporter, uh, Professor Feldman, who again, and I just want to make clear, he's the messenger. (laughs) That's how I perceive his role. He's not an advocate. He is presenting and the chair presents the the work of the committee and, and then the committee as a committee is presenting this. So I don't want to suggest that that this is anything more than Professor Feldman serving his role as he's done so well as a neutral third party in presenting the actual law. But he said in response to a question about what it was going to take to bring all the states together. Do we have any incentives that we can offer that will entice states to adopt the uniform law? And that's true for all the ULC's laws. Ultimately, the success of a proposed uniform law depends on states buying into it. So there's, a, I guess, an element of salesmanship here. And this commissioner, I think he was from Utah, said, look, how are we going to sell this thing? What are the incentives? at the state level, for state legislatures. And Professor Feldman says, look, as we were drafting this thing, we've had the benefit of seeing what states are doing. And a number of states had been considering this, and I think the ULC was attentive to what those bills looked like and what the legislative history of the bills were. And again, that process had been done in 40 states. And so... Professor Feldman says in characterizing the body of work across those 40 states, and he says, one thing 
that has been striking is that the laws are very similar. And he says there are some differences, but most of the differences are not significant. And then he talks about this process that has evolved as states have considered these name, image, and likeness laws. And as they build on each other, they have actually moved more towards consistency because one of the underlying fears, and this goes back to this crazy fear of losing a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market, is that they all want to land in in pretty much the same place so that there isn't a war, basically a name, image, and likeness war that's going to have some state or group of states acting outside of the interests of the whole. And they're used to acting as a whole because they've been operating under the umbrella of the NCAA and the Power Five, as I discussed a couple of episodes ago, have a very strong incentive to make sure that in the short run, at least, that all of their nil regulations are consistent. And that, to me, is exactly what's happening when I've looked at what's already on the books now. And there are some states and schools that really haven't addressed the issue yet. So, You have to ask yourself that given the fact that these laws are strikingly similar after 40 states have considered legislation, some has been uh, enacted into law, some have been passed by the state government, but they haven't gone into effect, and then you have some that are still being considered. And in his earlier characterization of the issues, Professor Feldman fell back on some NCAA propaganda and there was going to be chaos and a hodgepodge. These code words that the NCAA has used, but not for substantive uniformity. They're using those words at the federal level to make the case for preemption, to eliminate the state law. So I think there was a little conflation there. But if you're operating under the umbrella of the Uniform Law Commission, you have to make the case for uniformity and the need for uniformity. And the best case is when there is complete non-uniformity. And that doesn't exist here. It hasn't existed. I guess you could say California and New Mexico. I I don't know. But by and large, what you have is a group of states looking at this issue in uh, almost an identical way and being governed by principles that were put into place by the NCAA and the Power Five at the very beginning of the debate. These were cemented in, these were baked into the discussion and the narrative at the very beginning, and they've all expressed themselves in the work product on the back end. Now we can look back on all this fear of, oh, hodgepodge and patchwork and chaos and calamity and the end of college sports as we know it and all, all this stuff, and it doesn't exist. It's not an issue. There isn't chaos. There uh, isn't calamity. The earth didn't stop spinning and athletes didn't stop competing. And I'm guessing all the athletics administrators and the coaches and the athletics directors are still making their seven-figure salaries, okay? Just take a deep breath here. <laughs> let's, let's look at what is actually happening, not what the NCAA and Power Five wanted us to believe would happen through all their panic. And a lot of this too, this panic was driven, I believe, by the COVID-inspired fear of lost revenues. And so I think some people, and I would include Bubba Cunningham and Kevin White in this category, they were like, oh no, the sky's falling. We're going to lose all this money. And how in the world can we be embarking on some campaign that could even further disrupt the business model and all this stuff? A lot of that turned out to be overblown panic. Just in uh, a couple days ago, I read an article in the local paper where it turns out that UNC's losses for the year 
for that included for this fiscal year included fall football and included March Madness money. They didn't lose that much money. They they were off by six million dollars, which is not that big in, given the size of their budget. Cunningham was running around in the summer of 2020 telling anybody who would listen he was projecting that UNC would lose at least 30 million. He was off by a factor of five. The same is true with the conference revenues. This is independent of the schools. This is just the stuff that comes through the conference. And the five power conferences, three of them, I think, actually made more money than they did the year before. We don't know the NCAA's numbers. We're never going to see those unless uh, it's through a subpoena issued by the Senate. And I would love to see that happen. But all of the fear mongering and all of the sky is falling. When we, we're starting to put the pieces back together, and as the data now is rolling in, it was nothing what the in-system stakeholders claimed it was or would be. Yet we're still operating under this system of panic and urgency and the sky is falling and give us what we need right now or the, it's going to be the end of college sports as we know it and the integrity of college sports, the integrity of college sports based on myths, a, a series of myths. And that brings me to this other major theme that the committee uses to support the necessity for uniformity. It is well recognized and acknowledged that in order for a product like college sports at the national level, the NCAA. The same is true with professional sports. This is true for every professional sports that is organized under a single umbrella. There has to be some agreement, some uniformity on some basic rules for the product to exist at all. And that's a very important issue because it has been, in my judgment, misused by the NCAA and now by other people who've adopted the NCAA's way of thinking. And the NCAA looks at the Board of Regents decision, and I talked about this back when I was leading up to Austin, and I was trying to talk a little bit about how influential Board of Regents was. But in deciding whether to apply a per se, a flat out, this, this restriction on market activity is so outrageous that we're just going to strike it down as a per se violation of antitrust laws. The U.S. Supreme Court adopted, and for the first time, because lower courts had used the per se rule in NCAA cases, but the U.S. Supreme Court said, wait a minute, we can't use this slam dunk, this is obviously a clear violation of antitrust laws thinking here, because... But the very nature of the product requires the cooperation of the participants in, in the market. It, it was the joint venture argument that the NCAA made in Austin. But the theory is the same, that in order for this organization to do what it is supposed to do, which is to facilitate intercollegiate sports, there have to be agreements on, on some basic things like the basic rules of the game. How long is the game? How many timeouts are there going to be? What kind of uniforms do you wear? What kind of numbers are appropriate? Like in basketball, a lot of people don't know that there are certain numbers that you can't use. And there, there are reasons for that. But there are all these rules about how you actually conduct the sport and how you, at a most basic level, regulate the sport. The NCAA has taken that thinking and said that logic applies to every area in which the NCAA exercises any regulatory authority. And that is simply not the case. 
And the Uniform Law Commission, in justifying the need for a uniform law, uses that argument as well. And I think it's a little misleading because the uh, regulation here has nothing to do with the basic rules of the game or the basic organizing principles of the association. It has to do with directly regulating the economic activity of free Americans in their relationships with third parties. This is completely outside of the NCAA and by definition completely outside of the universities. And what the NCAA was saying and what the Uniform Law Commission was saying is that because these rules are necessary to determine what color uniforms the teams have to wear, then a rule limiting compensation under the principle of amateurism and using that as a quote-unquote eligibility rule as a condition for competing at all, those two are the same. You can't draw any meaningful distinction between them. And that's, I believe, the only context in which the ULC could have been using this because they're talking about a law which permits compensation that had been prohibited by the NCAA. And so the NCAA rolls up that very argument to the United States Supreme Court in the Austin case. And that was a big part of their argument. It's been a, it was a big part of their argument in O'Bannon. And they got a lot of mileage out of the way that the Board of Regents Court, the Supreme Court in 1984, talked about the difference be, between the per se analysis and the rule of reason analysis and this need to cooperate on some basic operational principles. So here's what the U.S. Supreme Court says when the NCAA uses that logic to say that its amateurism-based compensation limits are essential to the uniformity necessary in the product for the product to exist at all. So the Supreme Court says, nor does the NCAA's status as a particular type of venture categorically exempt its restraints from ordinary rule of reason review. We do not doubt that some degree of coordination between competitors within sports leagues can be pro-competitive without some agreement among rivals on things like how many players may be on the field or the time allotted for play. The very competitions that consumers value would not be possible. Accordingly, even a sports league with market power might see some agreements among its members win antitrust approval in the twinkling of an eye. So basically what they're saying there is even if you have monopolistic or dominant market power, that logic would still apply. You wouldn't, it wouldn't be a violation of antitrust rules so long as you were regulating in an area that was undisputedly one that was necessary for the product to exist at all. How many players are on the field or the time allotted for play? And then the Supreme Court says this. But this insight does not always apply. That some restraints, and they put some in italics, that some restraints are necessary to create or maintain a league sport does not mean that all, and they put all in italics, that all aspects of elaborate interleague cooperation are. While a quick look will often be enough to approve the restraints necessary to produce a game, a fuller review may be appropriate for others. And then they quote a case uh, from 1996. It looks like this is out of the Ninth Circuit. And the quote is, just as the ability of McDonald's franchises to coordinate the release of a new hamburger does not imply their ability to agree on wages for counter workers, so the ability of sports teams to agree on a TV contract need not imply an ability to set wages for players. And then the U.S. Supreme Court says this. 
The NCAA's rule fixing wages for student athletes fall on the far side of this line. So they're saying this has absolutely nothing to do with these ministerial rules that are necessary in order for the organization to do its business at a national level. Nobody questions that Division I basketball and FBS football can proceed and have proceeded without the education-related compensation restrictions the district court enjoined. The games go on. Instead, the parties dispute whether and to what extent those restrictions in the NCAA's labor market yield benefits in its consumer market that can be attained by using substantially less restrictive means. This dispute presents complex questions requiring more than a blink to answer. This use of... Oh, everything has to be the same. We need absolute uniformity, including on fixing wages and fixing compensation and limiting compensation. First of all, it doesn't make sense. It's illogical. And as the U.S. Supreme Court said, in no uncertain terms, the activity that the NCAA engages in when it is fixing wages or it is limiting compensation is on the far end of the earth from these ministerial rules that everybody agrees are necessary for the competition and the organization to do its business at all. And so again, the reason I'm, I'm going to start going through all this stuff now rather than in sequence when I break down the perfect storm is that when you see the justifications that are offered by institutional stakeholders, then you look, for example, at how the U.S. Supreme Court looked at those justifications that they were a sham and that the NCAA had gotten buy-in at the institutional level and with decision makers in the most important decision-making arenas in federal courts, in Congress, in state legislatures, with private organizations like the Uniform Law Commission. All of these bedrock principles, like the one on joint ventures that the NCAA and the ULC rely so heavily upon, the U.S. Supreme Court said no. <laughs> no. We're, we're looking at it honestly, looking at it logically, stripping away all of the veneer and the history of NCAA propaganda, those principles under careful examination make no sense at all. And that's what I've been trying to say about this system one, system two thinking and the way that we just spontaneously consent to propositions which make no sense when they're really broken down, but because they have been insinuated into the public consciousness and have been adopted by institutions and authoritative people, we don't even think about it. And the U.S. Supreme Court's analysis is so clear. It's so obvious. It's, and it's succinct. It, didn't, it took, what, three paragraphs to dispense with something the NCAA has been relying on for decades and written thousands of pages of legal briefs, briefs defending over the years. <laughs> the Supreme Court just said, this is, I'm not, I don't have to check the explicit content thing. They just said, no, no. We don't think so. I'm going to finish up this episode, leaving it there. And I think I've set the groundwork for actually looking at the content of this Uniform Law Commission law. And then I'm going to go through that and, and talk about where I see it in the mosaic of these other laws. I'm going to talk about how it compares to some of the principles and uh, limitations that are contained in the institutional policies that have come out in the last two weeks. And then we'll also talk a little bit more about where this whole uniformity thing is going forward because that is how the NCAA and Power Five are going to wrap up their issues 
in their re-engagement with Congress when they come back after the August recess. It's going to be uniformity. That's all you're going to hear, just like that June 9th hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee. And that's why I think it's so important to really look under the hood of uniformity, the different ways and the different purposes to which it's been put, and how illusory it is when you actually look at how market participants have been have behaved as regulators because they're all acting together they're acting in concert using the same principles it's it's really interesting though to, to see how easy it is for some of these questionable narratives to just become unchallengeable truth in this debate with that i'll close it out and then we'll jump in real quick here in a little bit with an analysis of this law all right so With that, it's always an honor and a privilege to have you. I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.